0: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. I said I'd be back. People said, oh, he won't be back. He'll forget all about that. I said I'd be back during the Masters, and here we are. We've had the first round, and I'm going to be looking ahead to the quarterfinals. Um, it's been a very interesting tournament, um, as it always is. Someone said to me in the week, and they're right in a way, they said, we build this, the Masters up more and more, and obviously it can't, not every match can deliver. And that's, that's true of every tournament, of course. But there's been plenty happening. Uh, we're going to go through it and uh, look back at the predictions I made. Uh, spoiler, mixed. <laughs> I think it's fair to say, and uh, look ahead, make some more for the uh, the quarterfinals, which are we'll played over the next two days. And the uh, one first thing to say is, I think, I mean, listen, it, recency bias and all the rest of it, but I do think the Masters is getting better every year. I think World Snooker Tour have done a superb job. If anything it looks better this year than last year, um, it looks like an event, and the darts is the same. Really, it looks like an event you would want to be at. And that's obviously why every ticket's been sold. For the first time ever, every ticket's been sold ahead of the event. Uh, it looks like a good day out, a good evening out. Afternoon matches have been great as well. Great atmosphere. You know, you're part of something special. And um, obviously the players, then it's up to them to deliver. But yeah, it looks a great event. The set is superb. Um, I think you've got to credit the event managers at World Snooker Tour. You know, these are people, their names are not known to the public because they don't have to be. But, you know, you don't just sort of, you know, think about this event two weeks before it starts. They're already planning next year's Masters now. You know, there's a lot of work goes on through the year. It's quite a small team. There's a lot to think about. Obviously the venue, how that's going to work, which rooms you need in the venue, you know, the configuration of the arena, all sorts of things backstage. It's a lot, it's a long list of things. And obviously when the event starts, you're constantly sort of going around making sure everything's working properly and people are not to, not to slow in this sport to complain if they're not. So every credit to them, they've done a great job with this. It's a real showcase for the sport. In a way, I mean, the World Championship will always be the number one tournament, but in a way this is kind of, you could argue this is the number one showcase in as much as it's only a week. So it doesn't outstates welcome every session you see a result, apart from Sunday afternoon, the first session of the final, um, so you're seeing drama from sort of first ball to last and, you know, being in the capital it tends to attract a little bit of celebrity and, I, I mean, I'm not that bothered about that personally but the, 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 the hospitality lounges, they do lend something to it, definitely and it's, 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 um, it's sort of evening out for corporate types. Who knows, they might, if they've got a few quid, want to put it into snooker. So uh, I think the, the, the actual look of it has been fantastic. I was thinking, though, the, the old Wembley Conference Centre, I mean, that was a great venue held the Masters for the best part of 20 years. Um, Well, more than that, actually. But uh, that was a much bigger playing arena. And the the big big thing there was the sort of the trek back to your seat and indeed from your seat to the table. It's a long walk to the middle of the Wembley Conference Centre, quite forbidding in a way. This is very different. It's much sort of narrower. Reminds me a bit of Preston Guildhall when that was one table. Uh, But that in itself (laughs) brings its own pressure. The audience are closer. There's a kind of more boxed-in feel. Um, it's interesting how different arenas bring different sort of vibes. Um, I'm not saying any anyone's better than another, but um, anyway, I thought I'd mention that. And anyway, we're going to go through the matches shortly, but we have also had uh, some emails, which I thought I should acknowledge. it should be a short short podcast, so that's the idea, because I don't want to stay my welcome too much. And people would be saying, well, yeah, you've been here eight years. But anyway, um, we're going to go through some of the emails. Firstly, Mark Williams, not that one. Um, and you know, we like a bit of positivity and he says, happy new year to you. Let's hope 2024 brings just as much excitement and enjoyment from snooker, the same as what we've been spoiled with lately. Whilst I'm currently working on a night shift and downloading Stephen Hendry's latest snooker club podcast with guest Stephen Fry to listen to on the drive home, I was thinking what a great variety of snooker podcasts, YouTube channels, Instagram pages are available not to mention the coverage shown by Terrestrial and pay-per-view TV. There really is something for everyone, from the casual viewer to the die-hard fan. I would encourage everyone to check out these, any of these if they haven't before. There's so much out there now, the biggest problem I have is finding the time to watch and listen to it all. It's fantastic all this material is out there each week, and I certainly agree with you that the sport is thriving. Of late, we've been spoilt with some great events from the UK Championship, Scottish Open, various qualifiers, and now the Masters which just saw Ding make a maximum and a great performance by Ronnie. It's going to be a week of little sleep for me, working nights, getting up early for the afternoon match, and then hopefully finding time to watch the evening match or at least keep tabs on it. All worth it, though, to see the greats in action. Apologies as there isn't really any substance to this email. Well, it's never stopped anyone else, Mark, to be fair. But anyway, he says, uh, it's half three in the morning and I was checking out the overhaul WST website and trawling the streets of Sheffield on Google Street View getting ready for April and I was thinking about all the new ways available to fans to fuel their interest in snooker and the positive outlook with more tournaments, enhanced ticket sales, and I've heard some positive interviews lately with Steve Dawson, Barry and Eddie Hearn. Here's a big cheer to snooker for 2024 and beyond. Cheers, all the best, and the same sentiments to the Snooker Scene podcast and the work you put into it. Well, how about that, Mark, in the middle of the night? You know, most people, <laughs> if they get up at four in the morning, they sort of, you know, wonder wonder what's going on. But Mark has uh, has come out with that uh, terrific, um, well, it's not a polemic, it's the opposite of that, isn't it? But, um... Uh, uh, tribute, I guess, to the sport, which is great. I mean, you're right about the content that that has increased. I think these things are kind of symbiotic, aren't they? You know, the the more the more people go to tournaments, the more people watch tournaments on TV, the more other stuff is going to crop up. And just this week, uh the WPBSA podcast has launched. I said it would be niche. If you've listened to it, <laughs> I think you'd agree. Michael McMullen interviewed uh, Fergal O'Brien and Sean Murphy about the 2001 Masters. So their their sort of plan is to go through. Uh, different sort of torments in the past and, and, and put them in a historical context, all very good. Um, and, yes, Stephen Fry, um, just a b- good booking, that is, you've got to be said, you know, he's a very entertaining character and a genuine snooker fan. He, I mean, he was talking about Dave Gilbert's nickname and all that, quite niche stuff. Um, yeah, and, you know, you, you, I was going to say you pays your money, you take your choice, but, of course, podcasts are free, so you don't pay anything, which is good. I'm glad that all of that stuff around the sport um, helps enhance hopefully helps enhance people's enjoyment of the sport and uh, you know obviously people could be discerning and people can choose what they want to listen to but anyway nice uh, nice email that from Mark and uh, thank you Mark for sending it in and I hope you're enjoying the rest of the tournament uh, Colin Johnston he says just a few random comments and questions if you don't mind firstly I thought I'd give Fergal O'Brien a shout-out for his excellent commentary style. great addition to the Eurosport team. Obviously, his experience shines through in his commentary, as you'd expect. Very insightful, with a most pleasing dry wit as well, which maybe I didn't expect. Really good. As you mentioned on the previous edition, it's good to see the newly designed WST website. I do agree that the choice of font isn't to my liking either. Maybe it's for the youth audience. Uh, Any word of the shockingly poor app upgrade, (laughs) as I thought it might have been released at the same time? Uh, I, I don't know that it has been I, I, I deleted it from my phone a while ago because it was no good um, I think it is being upgraded yes I, I think any day soon the font I mean I don't want to get bogged down in the font I'm sure there's podcasts about font uh, out there which are discussing nothing more uh, yeah I mean it probably is for the youth market and fa- fair enough I just find it that sort of calculator text i actually actually it quite hard to read but it's only on the headlines the rest of it's fine uh, we can't get bogged down in fonts good grief uh, Colin says I really enjoyed the Six Reds tournament in the Far East last time out therefore was disappointed to hear it's been cancelled this year any news on the reasons for the cancellation whether this is a permanent cancellation of the event or whether we can hopefully look forward to it maybe returning next year thanks again it's great that us diehard snooker fans have such a forum we can reach out to to present our views and ask the odd question of well thank you Colin Um, yeah the Six Reds I was told um, that the reason for the cancellation it's quite a strange one there are, I think, there are two other world championships in other sports that are on at that time, and the the, the feeling was that there shouldn't be another one on at the same time in Thailand. So I'm not quite sure what sports they were, but I was told that it clashes with other major events in Thailand. So I don't think it means we'll never see it again. I mean, there was talk of it becoming a ranking event within the sport. I mean, I don't know how far those sort of you know, discussions got. I'm not sure about that personally, but anyway, the fact is it's not on this season, but I suspect it will return. Um, and, and of course, I'm Fergal. I mean, you're absolutely right. A terrific character, and I think he. Will, I mean, he's, he's announced he's going to retire from playing, which is which, um, a bit of a turnaround from when he uh, was famously when he got through Q School. He said he was asked about retirement. He said, "You'll know when I'm when I've retired. I'll be dead." Um, well, it turns out he is going to stop. I think I can kind of understand that because I know that Fergal, as he's got older, is less keen on travelling. So because the events are back in China. You know, to, to stay on the tour with those big money events, you have to try and qualify for them. A lot of trips over there. Maybe now he's in his 50s, that's not so appealing to him. But Fergal will always be a man of snooker. He'll do coaching and he'll do commentary and he'll just be a good figure in the sport. And uh, as you say, a very entertaining character as well. Uh, Parser, right? So thanks for the great podcast. The Christmas special was particularly delightful. Thank you, So, Just watching Judd Trump be Karen Wilson, so this was in the first round of the Masters, I noticed in the seventh frame on the green Karen couldn't see the green full ball but was trying to do a thin cut off it. He missed the green three times but was not warned after the second attempt and therefore didn't forfeit the frame, surprisingly. To be fair, he confirmed with the referee before his third attempt and also he lost the frame in the end anyway, so no real harm done, but still curious to know would you know if the rules have changed or am I missing something? Keep up the good work, please. I always look forward to new episodes on Mondays. Well, what a what a um, bonus uh, for you, Pastor, that this, this is now a Thursday edition, which is already longer than I'd intended. I'd intended to do 10 minutes, but they were already. But anyway, uh, no, the rule hasn't changed. The, yeah, the, you're quite right, this was in the in, um, on the green in that frame, in frame seven. What happened was, the, so he missed the green initially. The miss was called, but Judge Trump didn't take it. So Judge Trump didn't ask for the white to be put back. Therefore, that is, that is not counted in the sequence. If, if the player doesn't have the white replaced... It, then it's a new sequence, so then he missed another time, and that was the start of the three-miss sequence. So by the time he got down to, uh, obviously, the third attempt, he would have to hit it. Um, so that, that answers that, basically. It wasn't part of the sequence because Trump didn't take the miss. Um, but uh, thank you for the email, Parser, and uh, we move on to another rules query. Gavin Power, I hope you're enjoying the Masters. Some great matches so far. I wondered if you could clarify a ruling for me. What would be the protocol in the following scenario? During the early stages of a frame, a player pots a long red and the white follows through towards the pack, then splits open the pack and the white nestles near the centre, entirely surrounded by reds. It's in a position where the player cannot possibly hit a colour, even from a cushion. What happens next? Have you ever seen this happen? I don't think I have seen it happen, Gavin. Um, But my understanding is, and the referees out there listening would be ready to really bristle if I get this wrong, but my understanding is you have to play a shot, even though it will be a foul. You have to attempt a shot. I imagine that the frame would probably end in a re very soon because, obviously, the, the, your opponent coming to the table has it, got the same issue with the cue ball in amongst all the reds. What are they are going to do? Just tip-tap. But you have to be seen to play a shot. You know, Even if you can't actually hit a, a colour, it'll be a foul, but at least you played some sort of shot. I believe that's the case. I dare say Marcel Eckhart is already firing up his laptop to, to write in, if that's not right. But um, that, that is my understanding of it. I've never seen it personally, but um, I suppose if you watch enough Snooky, you'll see everything eventually. Graham Longbottom writes, Happy New Year. With regards, and to you, Graham, with regards to a recent listener correspondent asking why certain players, the likes of Trump, Hawkins, Allen, etc., use their right hand when using the rest, the short answer is because they are right handed. This can be seen if one views images of them signing autographs. All hold the pen in the right hand. Now, he's attached pictures, in, uh, visual proof, which obviously, you know, this is a podcast, you can't see it, but he's, he's got pictures here. He says, the question then should really be, why do the queue normally use in their left hands? Handedness is not strictly as binary as usually thought, but exists on a spectrum with a significant part of the population displaying mixed handedness. In that they will perform at least some subset tasks with their otherwise non-dominant hand. Some sentence that I feel like we've sort of breached the last taboo here. But anyway, uh, he continues. Often not, not often not even being cognizant of doing so. This I, I'll read that again because I interrupted with a, not a very funny joke. So I'll just read that again. Graham says handedness is not a strict binary as usual thought, but exists on a spectrum with a significant part of the population displaying mixed handedness in that they will perform at least some subset tasks with their otherwise non-dominant hand, often not being even being cognizant of doing so. This can arise for many reasons, with a common one being left-handed individuals accommodating to a predominantly right-handed world. For example, in music, all members of the string sections play with the bow in the same hand, as it would be impractical otherwise, and instruments such as a piano are set up with the lower registers towards the left. In a kitchen, the available single uh, beveled knives may only be right-handed ones and so on. There are many potential considerations in a sporting context – there may be some tactical advantage see the number of cricketers who bowl with the right hand but bat left-handed it could be specific to the physiology of the individual for example it may be easier to sight with one's dominant eye when using an opposite-handed stance rafael nadal plays tennis left-handed despite being naturally right-handed since as a child he found his left arm was stronger or or even may or even may just be aesthetics the basketballer lebron james left-hand dominant shoots right-handed due to watching right-handers such as michael jordan and Penny Hardaway when growing up. A youngster inspired to play by Jimmy White may just mimic their idol's technique without much consideration. I'm not sure if there's any specific advantage in snooker to playing left-handed, as the only real asymmetry on the table are the positions of the yellow and green balls. It could just be the impact on tactics and shot selections of mostly facing right-handed players. The seemingly disproportionate number of left-handed cueists, natural or otherwise, in the top order of the game would lend some credence to this. Returning to the question, the core tasks by which innate handedness is, are, is usually judged are mainly the aforementioned, writing and throwing or catching an object. The standard technique for rest play is probably more similar to the actions of throwing a ball or dart than normal queuing. I believe I've seen Mark Allen play darts right handed. It may just be that to relearn this similar action to play the rest with the opposite hand as well, the juice is not worth the squeeze. Whereas the action of queuing in snooker is fairly unlike any other task that one would commonly perform at least, of which I can think. What about that from Graham? I mean, you know, 10 minutes ago we were talking about fonts. <laughs> now now we've got a full explanation there of uh, the, the business of, of, of handedness. And, uh, well, I think it's fair to say Graham was even-handed in his approach there. Thank you, Graham. That's very interesting and very informative. And uh, let's be honest, we can't say that about every email. Or indeed, the responses to it. A final email, I think, is from... Matt Pickles, uh, hello Matt, he says, I'm joining the Masters on Eurosport and the BBC this week. Watching the Biebs coverage made me start thinking about how, how critically important the corporation are to the game of snooker and what might happen to the game if they ever drop their coverage. The reason I'm writing to you is I would like to hear your own thoughts on this, if possible broken down by short, medium and long term effects, taking into consideration matters such as general interest in the game in the UK, player prize money, Are there other UK broadcasters chomping at the bit to fill the void? And anything else you can think of? My own general feeling is the game would no doubt survive, with the interest in China and Europe through their respective broadcast partners. But isn't it very dangerous for a sport to put most of their eggs in one basket? We saw what happened with coverage of the darts, golf, cricket, Formula One football, etc. I doubt the contract will last forever. Then what? Well, Matt, uh, uh, a lot to consider there. I mean... The first thing to say is you say you con- doubt the concert will last forever. It's lasted a long time. I mean, the BBC have shown snooker regularly since 1969. They they showed bits here and there before that in, in black and white television. But obviously, when the colour service came in, it made a lot more sense to everybody. So, Pop Black launched in 1969. That was the weekly showcase for the sport. I'm sure most people know the history. It sort of built up the interest. Eventually, they started showing tournaments in highlights form in the 70s. And then from the late 70s to the present day, so over 40 years, They've shown extensive live coverage of tournaments. They've been very loyal to the sport, even when there's been talk, you know, political strife and talk of breakaways and, and trouble and, and, and when the sport maybe hasn't been as fashionable as possibly it is now. You know, they haven't walked away. They've stuck with it. Obviously, the number of tournaments they've shown has, you know, changed. They used to show, well, effectively six events because they had uh, the, 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 the Triple Crown, which of course wasn't known as that then, but they've got the UK, the Masters in the World, they had the Grand Prix the old World Team Cup they used to show and Pop Black as well was, was still survived into the mid-80s, mid came back in the 90s for a bit and indeed after that. But anyway, they've shown a lot of snooker down the years and someone worked out actually last year um, the most watched television programmes in history. Professional snooker is right up there in the top 10 um, on terrestrial television. So it's quite a footprint. There are obvious benefits and advantages to being on the BBC. It is the national broadcaster. And this is, again, a UK-centric thing. I apologise for that, but I'm answering an email that's come in from Matt. It's the national broadcaster. Still a lot of people go to the BBC first for their... Um, for their, Well, all TV, but certainly, you know, if there's sport on, they might watch sport on the BBC. They don't have satellite television, digital television. They don't watch it on streaming services either. I was listening to a new podcast, The Rest is Entertainment. It's called Rich Osman and Marina Hyde, and Richard Osman, who's a big Snooker fan, of course, he was talking about the 100 most-watched programmes on American television last year. And he said 88 of them were live sport. Because now, of course, and this is the thing, you hear about television ratings, it's kind of, not irrelevant, but for non-sporting programmes, it's less relevant. Because overwhelmingly now, people, a lot of people do watch television as it's being broadcast, but so many people now, more than ever, watch on catch-up, so they download it later on, Watch it in their own time. Some, you can now watch some programmes ahead of being broadcast because they're all on the iPlayer or ITVX or, or Sky Go, whatever the, the platforms are. Um, but of course, you know, I mean, Sky, had, I don't know whether it's still their slogan, but I thought it was a really good one. It's only live once. Sport, you kind of have to watch live if you can because you're part of something special as it's happening, which is why audiences for sport actually are huge because people do watch live. Just this week, the FA Cup matches 8 million people were watching them on the BBC You know These are really good figures these days We had, of course, a success story of our own at the UK Championship and the Scottish Open, which was boosted by being on DMAX, which is a freeview channel. But in terms of the BBC, they've been very important to snooker um, They, for many people in the UK established our love of snooker, the fact we were able to watch it, you know, in, back in the day, the 80s with David Vine and all that stuff you know That, that kind of crystallised and cemented a love of the game. Now, you asked specific questions. General interest in the UK. I know for a fact Joe Johnson, for example, owns a club. And he says when it's on the BBC, the club is fuller than when it's not. So it does help to, as a shop window, it helps to stimulate interest, definitely. Prize money, that's a slightly different one. Put it this way, OK, And it, it's we, we don't know, because it's not made public, it used to be actually, but it's not made public now, how much the BBC actually pay for the rights to their tournaments. I can't tell you if it's more than they used to, less than they used to, I can't tell you how much it is. You would hope it's several million, but we don't actually know, it's not made public. Let's, hypothetical uh, scenario, let's say DAZN, OK, they're a streaming platform, they show matchroom boxing and various other things. Let's say they came it to Will Street and said, And the BBC contract's up in 2027. Let's say they came to them and said, whatever they're paying for their tournaments, we're going to pay double. We'll pay you double, whatever it is. If they're paying 5000000 million, we'll pay 10 If they're paying 10000000 million, we'll pay 20 Whatever they're paying, we're going to offer you double. What would be the responsible response to that? Would it be to say, great, let's have the money. We can put the prize money up. We can put more tournaments on because we'll have more money. Or would it be to say, well, you're still quite a niche platform that a lot of people... And either don't have access to, or are not interested in paying for, or can't pay for because can't afford it. We're going to stick with the BBC. There's actually no right answer to that because you could argue both sides. You could argue the profile of the sport and keeping the sport in the national consciousness. You stay with the BBC. You could argue from a business perspective, it's better to take the money. So there's no right answer. People will have their own ideas. Uh, but I think the very the very question illustrates the value of having terrestrial broadcasters. And of course, we're now lucky we have it on ITV 4 extensively as well. They actually show more snooker now than the BBC. Um, And the question is, are other UK broadcasters chomping at the bit to fill the void? I mean, I'm sure these are prized events. The thing is, they're packaged together. So, for example, I don't speak for any of these broadcasters, but let's just say Channel 4, okay, wanted to show the Masters. I'm not sure they would... I'm not sure the the, the Triple Crown would be broken up. I think you have to take all three. and, And it may be that for some of the broadcasters, 17 days of one event... Is less practical because the BBC, one thing they do have, is a lot of different channels, whereas obviously most other broadcasters don't, um, and their platforms can't just be saturated with snooker. Um, The the BBC, like a lot of national institutions, you know, it it has its great defenders and its great critics, and really they're both right. You know, there's a lot of brilliant things about the BBC. It's been a great um, shop window for British culture, culture in general. Um, and can do things as a public service broadcaster that commercial channels can't do it's also you know, done a lot of things that uh, I think are highly questionable it's wasted a lot of money on things and it's, I mean I, I find it a little bit odd for example in the, in the sphere of podcasting why the BBC has so many, I mean it, it seems to be sort of encroaching maybe on the, the more independent sector but here's the thing okay and, and money always in the end talks and and Practicalities talk back in the 1980s. Margaret Thatcher, when she was Prime Minister, she was highly suspicious of the BBC she, because you know they she saw impartiality as actually uh, bit people out to get her, and so she brought in a, a broadcasting law which said that 25% of public service broadcasting had to be produced by independent companies, i.e., not within the BBC, they had to tender out to independent companies. Now, the snooker because there's so many hours of it, it's perfect for that. That really fills a quota. It's the only reason Snooker Extra exists. That programme, the extra two hours at night, goes towards that 25% total quota for the year for independent production. I'm not saying that's the only reason they show Snooker, but it's, it's a great help to them. There's so many hours of it, they can actually maintain that quota by showing things like Snooker. It's relatively cheap to produce in terms of production costs because there's only one playing area. It's indoors. If you look at golf, there's 18 different playing areas there. And, and, you know, they're quite large in, in volume. Um, you know, football matches are outdoors. That that brings extra cost. So, snooker's relatively cheap. It's very popular. And it's done good business for them. And let's be honest, the BBC have lost a lot of other sport over the years. They've got a high-profile, highly prized set of events there. I'd be surprised if they didn't carry on showing them. And Will Snooker Tour have got a very close relationship with them, always have done. And I'm sure I want to maintain it. Um, so I hope that answers in some way your question or your set of questions. Anyway, this is a very long uh, podcast now. It wasn't meant to be this long. Um, this is what happens when you just talk to yourself. Uh, so let's go back over the matches we've seen, and they've been some uh, fascinating ones so far. Because we started uh, on Sunday afternoon, Luca Brussel, Jack Lazowski. I made two predictions about this match. I said that uh, I said Luca. I said it would be six five, and Luca would win. Well, it wasn't. It was six two to Jack. <laughs> I thought he played very well. I thought, you can tell a lot, you know, the intros Rob Walker does obviously are brilliant, and you can tell a lot from the players just looking at them walking out, and I thought Bricell looked nervous. He did an interview on Eurosport with Rachel Casey beforehand, where he was very negative, and she actually said to him at the end, are you looking forward to the match? And he said no. <laughs> well, I mean, what what a thing to say, you know? I, I just, the, the body language is all wrong. It's like a perfect storm this year for Bricell. He's been celebrating a world champion, Good luck to him, absolutely. But because of that, his mind has not been fully focused on his game. He's been travelling, he's been enjoying himself. He's lost sharpness where other players are sharp. And also, he's got a target on his back. He's world champion. People want to beat him. He's a good scalp. You put all that together, he's under pressure. And of course, the more matches he loses, the more pressure he'll be under. I felt maybe the Masters would inspire him. But the minute I saw that interview, I kind of knew that he was in trouble. Because so much of it is on the other player as well. And I thought Jack was brilliant. I thought he's, compared to when he started there at that tournament, when he looked overawed and looked nervous, I thought he came out, he looked confident, he played his natural game. He seemed to take just a few extra seconds on a few shots. And that's been, in a way, the problem for him, just rushing in a little bit at times and, and getting ahead of himself. He's working now with Lee Walker, former professional, of course, former World Seniors Champion, coach to Mark Williams. And uh, he's instilled a few things in him. He's another wise... We were talking about Fergal earlier. Lee Walker's another wise owl of the sport. Um, You know, knows everything about technique and understands... Just understands it from a player's perspective because he's been a player himself. It's not a theoretical approach. It's a practical approach. And I think it could help Jack. And, uh, well, I thought he was very impressive. And particularly after Bricell came back at him, he responded and, and... Good luck to him. He's uh, he's in the quarterfinals. Sunday night we had uh, Sean Murphy Zhangander. I did get this one right. I went for Murphy, um, and really it kind of bore out kind of what I said and a lot of the people said, which is it's Zhang's the only debutant this year, ninety fifth player to play. They've never been in that environment before. It's an environment that favours Murphy, just his natural exuberance and, and confidence, and that's kind of how it went. And of course it set up uh, Murphy Lazowski. I may as well uh, preview these quarterfinals as we go along. So that'll be a Thursday night, tonight, if you're listening on Thursday, <laughs> obviously. 5-3 um, to Murphy on the head-to-head. Jacks won the last three. Um, and You may remember the British Open, that incredible clearance he made. Uh, the first two pots were both absolute worldies. Um, yeah. Stephen Hendry, I heard Stephen Hendry say, I think it was on the World Snooker podcast, um, and I think he's absolutely right. Uh, which I'm sure would be <laughs> delighted to hear me, me say that the seven times world champions, right? But um, he said it's not a question of bottle with Jack, actually, and he's, he's right. He can stand up to pressure. He's won close matches. He's lost a few as well, obviously. But it's more, like I say, getting ahead of himself, taking things for granted, not focusing, not concentrating. Uh, that match at the British Open was just unbelievable. The way the way he won it, um, and the poise he showed under pressure. You know, not many people could have won it the way he won it, actually. The first two shots, as I say, were, were both on the hot shots uh, on ITV. And, uh, he's got a serious chance there, I think, if he can take that same attitude that he took into the Brussels match. Um, of course, the UK Championship made four centuries in a row against Murphy last season. So, it kind of sounds like I'm edging towards Jack. Having said that, Sean Murphy, you know, this is a tournament. I mean, Sean loves playing snooker, but this is a tournament where he's very proud to go out there. I think that's a, there's a lot to be said for that. He's proud to put the suit on to be a snooker player, to be a former champion. I said last time he'd won it twice. He hasn't. even won it once. That was my mistake. Got getting getting giddy in the new year, getting carried away. Um, but he really does relish that atmosphere. It'll be an evening match, which again will be a different, slightly different atmosphere. They've had a few more drinks. It's a bit rowdier, maybe. So I am going to slightly tip the balance towards Murphy there. Maybe not much in it, about 6-4 possibly. Um, I like what I've seen from Jack so far, but I'm going to just slightly, and it is slightly, but I'm going to slightly tip the balance towards uh, Sean Murphy. Uh, as I said last time, no wagering, it's just for fun. Monday afternoon, what a what a thrilling afternoon that was. We had Ronnie O'Sullivan, Ding Jun meeting in the Masters for the sixth time. It was the sixth victory in the end for O'Sullivan. He was 4-0 up. The match completely petering out. Ding has not done anything at this point. Ronnie misses a red. Kind of because he's almost like under no pressure, I think. He's just not even really thinking properly. And suddenly, Ding makes a clearance. Then he makes a 92. And then he makes only the fourth ever maximum in the Masters. And, of course, he made 50% of them. He's made two. They've all been made by non-British players. 40 years on from Kirk Stevens from Canada, making the first. The thing about that one was, that was against Jimmy White in... uh, the semi-finals. There's two things to say about that. Well, two things I'm going to say about it. You've heard of the Mandela effect. This is where people believe they heard of the death of Nelson Mandela actually years before he was actually dead. And there's a little bit of that in this. There's so many people who claim to have seen that live on TV. It wasn't live. <laughs> it wasn't live. It was shown, like most things that in those days, in highlights form. You'd have seen it live if you were there. But here's the other thing about it. It's on YouTube. And... After Kirk makes the break, the sponsor comes out and makes a speech. Because it was so rare. It was only the third 147 ever made in professional competition. Stops play and makes a speech. Uh, That didn't happen this time. Uh, Ding, of course, made the second in 2007. Mokafu, Hong Kong, the third in 2015. But uh, China's great. Ding jun making another maximum. um, Of course, now this triple crown bonus thing. If he makes one at the World Championship which is not out of the question by any means. He'll certainly be going for it, I suspect. He'll get 147,000. Mm. We'll see whether anyone else makes one or not. But, um, yeah, brilliant. He was a great break. So, anyway, he got back to 4-3, but Ronnie responded well and got the match one six three. I was interested in what he had to say afterwards. You don't always kind of take it seriously, but I actually thought what he said was right. The thing about Ronnie O'Sullivan is he's... Why is he so great? Well, so many people say it's his cue ball control. His cue ball is better than anyone else's, basically. It has to be said in this match, even though he had a couple of centuries, it kind of wasn't. He was he was playing in a less sort of precise way. He was still potting great balls. I thought he'd play well. But he was. I thought what he said about his own game actually rang true. And, and that doesn't mean he can't win the tournament, obviously, because he's brilliant. But it maybe wasn't... The sort of polished performance that we saw maybe at times at the ECO Championship, not all through the tournament by any means, but at times uh, we saw it. Uh, There's still time for that to change. He plays Barry Hawkins next. Hawkins beat Neil Robertson 6-3. That's one I didn't get right. I went for Robertson there. I thought he might bounce back. (laughs) He struggled early on, a couple of frames went scrappy and Barry Hawkins is such a magnificent safety player, he can play any sort of frame, Barry, he's a great all-round player, he can score, he can control things, he did not mind if it goes scrappy, he can cope with it, his concentration's good um, his attitude's good actually, and Robertson, he was just bits and pieces, his average shot time was in the 30s at the interval, highest break 27 he increased it to 32, but I mean it was not good stuff really, he wasn't playing terribly by any means but he just couldn't get in but then, of course, from 4-1 down, he made back-to-back centuries. And you think, OK, well, now he's arrived. Pressure's on Hawkins to stand up to it. And he did. He made a 69 break and he won the last as well. So, disappointment for Robertson. Um, there are flashes there of good form. But I suppose in retrospect, you could argue, and, and you, you know, could put any narrative onto anything once it's happened. And that, that, that's what happens all the time in sport. But I suppose, looking back, if you've taken a break for over a month... Walking back into competitive action at the Masters Where it is the best of the best And you know you've got to play well It's going to be difficult really In that environment to Get much success isn't it Because you've got no sort of match play to build on No, You're kind of rusty Now I know I tipped him so it's easy to say that now But um, anyway He got beat Hawkins uh, takes on Ronnie O'Sullivan next Head to head does not make happy reading for Barry It's 17 to Ronnie One of Barry's wins within the World Championship second round 2016-13-12 where he played absolutely superbly but since then it's been a succession of defeats seven defeats since then to O'Sullivan the one I remember was the Tour Championship 2021 we were behind closed doors in, uh, in Newport at the international centre there and uh, Barry was 9-6 up playing brilliantly and Ronnie made some terrific breaks to turn it around, and win 10-9 um, which is what he can do last meeting at the World Grand Prix last year about a year ago now Ronnie won 4-0. I can't see past Sullivan. In fact, the draw, let's be honest, he's now starting to look favourable for him. Uh, you know, you, you, you always kind of, if he's in the tournament, you always kind of feel he's the man to beat. Now, there's a lot of other players to beat as well there, but I can't look beyond him for that match, even though I like what I saw from Hawkins against in Robertson match. It just feels like a different match against O'Sullivan. Uh, it is a different match, um, Anyway, we'll see. That's on Thursday afternoon. Ali Carter defeating Mark Williams 6-4. This was a very impressive performance. I did tip Carter to win that match, and I did say he could get on a run there as an outsider, so I got that one right. Um, he also made a couple of centuries, and I just thought you saw there a player who just really wanted to win but controlled that kind of aggression and controlled that sort of natural determination he has really well. Um was impressed with him and of course first appearance there for four years and he said afterwards you know he'd, he he started to just take or, or, or just focus a little bit more on snooker and kind of realise actually you know these are the years now he's in his mid 40s now he can 44 it looks well but you know he's not going to be there forever so he needs to knuckle down now try and you know get more titles on board and be as successful as he can uh, he played Judd Trump <coughs> in uh, the quarter finals uh, after Trump's Pretty extraordinary win over Kyron Wilson. A lot of this match was quite scrappy. But it came alive in extraordinary fashion at the end. The last two frames. Kyron Wilson made a great clearance for five each. Fantastic. Really positive. You know, he attacked and he got the re- the rewards for that. And it looked like he was going to win the decider. Left that red to the middle through the gap. Uh, and Trump himself stepped in and made a great decider. And this is where these guys are so impressive and where they owe their money to do that. You know, in that environment, with everything on the line. Uh, you got to be made of pretty special stuff to do that. And Trump did it. And a bit like last year. You know, last year he, he maybe should have got beaten a couple of rounds. But uh, dodged the proverbial bullets. He beat uh, Ryan Day, wasn't it, in round one last year, I think, 6-5. And then he beat Barry Hawkins 6-5. So he survived uh, only just, but he survived again. And uh, he'll play Ali Carter in the quarterfinals, Trump says something interesting actually afterwards and I agree with him he says he very rarely in the big events plays well in round one and that's certainly true and sometimes of course he loses but once he's bedded into a tournament it's more likely he's going to start playing well and obviously that's a concern for Carter I'm going to slightly edge towards Ali Carter here just because I kind of did before the tournament began sort of say he could be an outsider to watch and you know there was sort of vulnerabilities in Trump in that match he was 3-0 down after all um, the head teddy's is five each, so there's not much to go on there. Uh, Ali Carter did win the the, uh, the match at the Players Championship last season. Of course, this season they played in the Wuhan Open final, which Trump won ten seven. But yeah, I, I think Trump's the obvious choice there in a way, so I'm going to go against the grain there. And I'm going to tip Ali Carter. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, they are just it's just fun predictions. We're not nobody's uh, nobody's. Uh, holding it against anyone, or at least I hope they're not. I'm going to bring this to a, to a close now because this has been far too long for what was supposed to be a 10 minute podcast. So the final two results, Mark Allen beat John Higgins 6-5. I went for Higgins in that one. This wasn't a great match in terms of standard. Uh, it was dramatic. The crowd stayed with it to the end. There were shifts in momentum. Allen battled away, you know, he dug in and in the end he won the framing, the, the uh, deciding framing one visit, 86 break. John Higgins, more disappointment. Another big match, high-profile match, where he's played well. And that's the thing with Higgins. His game is not gone. If it had gone, he could just retire. But he can still play to a very high standard. But he's very inconsistent. And it seems to me it's gone from being inconsistent from tournament to tournament to being inconsistent from match to match to now, inconsistent from frame to frame. Um He was bossing that match at 3-1. He let three frames slip by. And, you know, you could see the frustration and the disappointment in his comments afterwards. I don't know what the way out of it is. I've heard pundits say, oh, he'll be winning tournaments again soon. I don't really get what what, what the evidence for that is. You know, he's struggling at the moment. Um And it would be interesting to see. I think he will be seeded at the Crucible, but his end of season ranking with those semi-final points coming off from two years ago, he could start next season outside the top 16. And you never know, that could be a slippery slope. So, uh, disappointment for him. But Mark Allen, again, proving how tough he is. And he's through. He'll play Mark Selby in... The quarterfinals. Mark Selby was my tip. Uh, he beat Robert Milkins, of course. He was my tip uh, pre-tournament. So I've got to stay with him. I can't, can't change horses now. I'm going to stay with him. So what I'm saying is the uh, the semi-final lineup then is going to be Ronnie O'Sullivan against Sean Murphy and Ali Carter against Mark Selby. <laughs> so there we are. That's the final four. Or is it? Well, we'll find out over the next few days. One thing I will say is we're not at that many centuries. And I think the pockets are playing on the tight side. Seen balls stay out that we've seen go in in other tournaments. Um, oddly enough, our dear friends on social media are not posting those clips. They they like to post clips of balls that they think shouldn't go in, but uh, they're not posting clips of balls that probably should go in. Um, oddly enough, but anyway, uh, it, yeah, that's contributing. You know, players have got to be precise. Um, people who complain that the pockets are too big are now complaining the standard isn't high enough. It's nothing to do with that. It's to do with the, the table conditions, which are very testing. We saw it at the British Open this season, a similar sort of thing. Um, but anyway, it's it's been an enjoyable start, the first four days, and we continue into the weekend. i will going be back on Saturday. I'm tempted to just do a podcast every day now, but I, I feel I like maybe outstime, uh, outstay my welcome a little bit, so maybe that would be uh, too extreme. But I'll be back on Saturday to see how the quarterfinals went, and looking ahead to the semifinals. And then finally on Sunday, we have had a few other emails we've not read out, which I will read out on Saturday, so uh, don't think I've ignored you. I will be reading those out later on. Uh, In the meantime, we're members of the Sports Social Network and so on and so on. Um, And uh, yes, enjoy the quarterfinals of the Masters. And uh, for now, as we always say, even on these special editions, it's goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.